About 750 years ago, a man wrote a book about London. He was not intending to write about London per se. Rather, he was actually writing about a completely separate person. And he wanted to write about the life story of this separate person and give his account of the story of this man because it was very intriguing to the world at the time. But in the process of doing this, our author penned the first description of the lives of Londoners in the past. This man was called William Fitzstephen. And his account of London and why he wrote it and how accurate it was is the subject of this podcast. Hi. My name is Saul and you are listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to explaining the tale of this amazing city from the point of view of the residents at the time. We have reached the year 1174 and stumble upon the guide to London, its people and its habits written at the time and allowing us to visualise and make sense of this ancient city seven and a half centuries ago. Welcome then to chapter 69 of the story, The Guide to London in 1174. So, who is William Fitzstephens, and why is he writing about London? Well, to begin with, William Fitzstephens was a priest, or an ordained churchman, who worked in the household of Thomas Becket, the Londoner who had risen to become Chancellor of England before going on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. If Becket was supposedly charged with running the kingdom for the king, Henry II, William Fitzstephen was basically one of the men Becket employed to run his household. William was Thomas Becket's household clerk for about 10 years or so. So when Becket became named as Archbishop of Canterbury, William, for example, was given responsibility for perusing letters and petitions involving the diocese and helping the Archbishop deal with them. He was as close to Thomas Becket as any man could be. He was Becket's man. In an age of personal patronage and support, his loyalty to Becket was without doubt. Yet there was also some flexibility in there. For example, when Becket was disgraced at Northampton Castle, William witnessed this. But when Becket was forced into exile, King Henry did not impose his punishment upon Fitzstephens. Yet when his former master and the king were reconciled briefly, William returned to his service, and here he became a trusted advisor, at least according to his own accounts, a confederate of the most powerful priest in England. And in 1170, when Thomas Becket was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral, William Fitzstephens was there and witnessed the event, watching his mentor die and then witnessing the hysteric reaction to his death. By 1174, Thomas of London was already being referred to as a Christian martyr and saint. And it was in this atmosphere of devotion and tribute to his former patron that William Fitzstephen wrote his biography of the man, the Vitae Sancte Tomae, the life of St. Thomas. In it, Fitzstephen made sure to present the accounting and reckoning of events that led to the Londoner's death, the conflicts between him and the king and more. And to begin the book, he introduced a preface to the place where Thomas had been born and raised. At the very start of the Vitae Sancte Tomé is a preface called Descriptio Nobilissima Civitatis Londoni. A description of the noble citizens of London. 
So why did he add it? Well, I think partly because Thomas Beckett was ultimately a Londoner. As I've mentioned previously, Beckett seemed to be acutely aware of his low-born status throughout his career and life, and the title he preferred to use always seems to have been simply Thomas of London. Well, we do not know if William Fitzstephen was born or raised in London, and I don't believe he was, or if he had later dealings with the city, which he may well have done. I believe in his account of the city, William shows that he was basing his thoughts and feelings upon Beckett's descriptions of the city. And what on earth do I have to base this belief upon? Well, not much, really. But in the issue of transparency, I will explain my reasoning and, as always, alert you to this being a homespun theory of my own and invite greater masters of this time period to point out my fallacies at a later date if they desire. For me, when you read these descriptions of London, you find that Fitzstephens generally doesn't go into details. He describes the three castles, but not their names. He describes somewhere like Smithfield, but not its church. He paints descriptions often in broad sweeps. Where he does go into detail, we see a huge amount of time spent talking about things that feel personal. He spends much more time talking about fast food districts than he does about St. Paul's Cathedral, and almost nothing on the sheriffs of London, like how they're chosen or where they live, but goes into extraordinary detail about the pastimes and adventures available for young men of London. Indeed, when we read the whole thing, it feels deeply like it was based upon a decade's worth of chats with a man who liked to start some conversations with the words, you know, when I was young, back in London, we used to... And this is the impression I get from reading Fitzstephen's description of London, that it is one based upon Thomas Beckett and his memories and feelings towards the city of his youth and birth. We know Thomas attended school in London, and it was in the company of young men of the city he came of age, where his formative memories were formed, where he made his first friends. Later, he would complete his education out in a priory, but the memory of London and his experience he had within it seemed to burn brightly. Could it be that perhaps Fitzstephen had experienced the same? Possibly. But make no mistake, what follows, while a fascinating insight into the social life of London, it is as remarkable for what it misses out. There are almost no mentions of women in the entire thing, except to refer to them as matronly Sabines, invoking images of virtuous and distant figures. At least 50% of the city's population were female, and yet any idea of their lives is missing. One could say, hey, the men writing are priests and clerics, of course they can't be expected to know about women, but when you listen you can't help but feel that the memories contained within it, the description of the city and its people, was written by someone who was emotionally basically still an older teenager, remembering the cool and awesome things he could do when he was young, and seeing the world from the point of view of a young man gazing at the exciting bits and quickly bored at the things you didn't understand at the time. Hence why I believe what follows is filled with endless descriptions of the amazing social activities available to young scholars and the young men of London, and only briefly touches upon what pastimes would be exclusive to adults and discerns nothing about the entire female population of the city. Still, even taking all that on board, even if this is simply William Fitzstephen's writing up fond memories that Thomas Beckett's had about his childhood, it is still an invaluable document. 
because not only does it give us insights into London as it was, but helps pick up on elements of London that have remained. Timeless qualities of the city that stand out to us all. Things that happened 750 years ago that seem to still be going on now, or which events now seem to mimic. The popularity of fast food places, the love of football, ice skating, laughing at the failures of others, the city's love of watching spectacle, rap. I'll get to that. And so we need to get into this. Now I'm sure some wonderfully professional company would hire some great voice actor to narrate this for a professionally produced podcast. This is a one-man show, so I'm going to be narrating it. I will try to do it in a different tone, so rather than saying quote-unquote all the way through, that hopefully you can tell that when I'm saying Fitzstephen's words, and then I'll intersperse with my own as we go along. The other thing I will say is there are many modern translations of Fitzstephen's description of London. The problem I have with them is, whereas they're probably a little bit more articulate, they don't capture the alienness of this world. This is a man writing 750 years ago in Latin. He was filled with the follies of such men writing 750 years ago. And as such, I've used a translation that is somewhat wordy, but I use it specifically because I believe it captures more the mentality of William Fitzstephen. So we'll start with the introduction to the city, which is grand sounding. And here we hear Fitzstephen's begin to get warmed up, introducing London to his readers. Among the noble cities of the world that are celebrated by fame, the city of London, seat of the monarchy of England, is one that spreads its fame wider, sends its wealth and wares further, and lifts its head higher than all others. It is blessed in the wholesomeness of its air, in its reverence for the Christian faith, in the strength of its bulwarks, the nature of its situation, the honour of its citizens, and the chastity of its matrons. It is likewise most merry in its sports and fruitful of noble men. These things it is my pleasure to treat, each in its own place. There the mild sky doth soften hearts of men, not that they may be weak slaves of lust, but that they may not be savage and like unto beasts, may rather that they may be of a kindly and liberal temper. We must understand throughout the text, Fitzstephens uses terms and frames of references that most modern translations tend to avoid. I won't, but that's because I'm a pedantic. He quotes other texts in his writing to reinforce his point. Some of these we know, some of these we don't, but he uses these quotes to back up what he's saying. So when he talks about the nature of Londoners, he's referencing them in regards to how men of learning thought about things 750 years ago. Hence the comment, people's hearts are softened or friendly in London. 
But then he has to clarify they have not become weak slaves of lust, revealing what sounds to be a common refrain about such people from the more violent elements within society at the time. Worth remembering, a kindly and liberal temper in the 1170s is not a kindly and liberal temper in the 2020s. But it is worth noting that here is a writer about 750 years ago openly saying, you know Londoners are a tad more liberal than the rest of England. And I ain't saying that this is held true without the history of the city since, just that it often seems like it. In the Church of St. Paul is the Episcopal See, once it was a metropolitan, and though it is thought that it will be so again if its citizens return to the island, unless perchance the archiepiscopal title of the blessed martyr Thomas and the presence of his body preserve that honour for all time at Canterbury, where it now resides. But since St. Thomas has adorned both these cities, London in his rising and Canterbury by his setting, each city has, in respect of the saint himself, something further that it may urge not without justice one against the other. The reference here is to mention how St. Paul's is not the home of the Archbishop of England, only a bishop. And Fitzstevens is referring to the by now half-remembered history of how London was supposed to be the seat of the Archbishop of England, at least according to a few scattered sources. How that role fell to the Kingdom of Kent and the town of Canterbury are events I covered all the way back in chapters 2 and 3 of this story. And that section in Fitzstevens also refers to the opening salvo of what I call the Great War of Thomas, Thomas Becket was a martyr, and places associated with martyrs would become places of pilgrimage, and places of pilgrimage, as we've discussed several times, become places of profit. There would always be two competing communities for these profits to be gained from St. Thomas, Canterbury, where he died, and London, where he was born. As we will see, London was to make a big thing about their native-born saint for many years to come. Also, as concerns Christian worship, there are both in London and the suburbs 13 greater conventual churches and 126 lesser parochial. On the east side stands the Palatine Citadel, exceeding great and strong, whose walls and bailey rise from the very deep foundations, their mortar being mixed with the blood of beasts. On the west are two stoutly fortified castles, while thence runs continuously a great wall and high, with seven double gates, and with towers along the north at intervals. On the south, London was once walled and towered in a like fashion, but the Thames, that mighty river, teeming with fish which runs on that side with the sea's ebb and flow, has in course of time washed away those bulwarks, undermined and cast them down. Also upstream to the west, the royal palace rises high above the water, a building beyond compare, with an outwork and bastions two miles from the city and joined thereto by a populous suburb. Now here is a description of London, as we have described it over the many chapters previously. The huge number of churches that are scattered throughout the city, 139 of various status are described in so small a city. The Palatine Citadel is, of course, the White Tower of London, and I adore the lurid belief that the mortar in its walls was mixed with the blood of beasts. 
Fitzstevens then describes Baynard's and Montefiche castles and the city wall, its seven gates, its towers. It describes what we have covered, how water erosion and the need for building space got rid of the wall along the riverside, and then goes on to describe Westminster, the palace, two miles downriver. He also just described the rich suburb that runs between the two, which at time of writing included the precincts of the New Templar compound and others along what was to be called the Strand. And then he goes in to describe the suburbs of London in a tad more detail. On all sides, beyond the houses, like the gardens of the citizens that dwell in the suburbs, planted with trees spacious and fair, adjoining one another. On the north are pasture lands and a pleasant space of flat meadows, intersected by running waters, which turn revolving wheelmills with a merry din. Hard by there are stretches of great forest, with wooden glades and lairs of wild beasts, deer both red and fallow, wild boars and bulls. The cornfields are not of barren gravel, but rich, aging plains, such as make glad the crops and fill the barns of their farmers with sheaves of serious stalks. There are also around London and the suburbs most excellent wells, whose waters are sweet, wholesome and clear, and whose runnels ripple amid pebbles bright. Among those, Hollywell, Clerkenwell and St. Clement's Well are the most famous and are visited by thicker throngs and greater multitudes of students and of young men of the city who go out on a summer evening to take the air. Notice this is the first time he just mentioned the students of London, leisurely leaving the rather fettered city to casually take a walk on a summer's day out to a local well or spring to freshen themselves. Fitzstevens, by the way, now allows a single bard into his narrative right now. In truth, a good city, when it has a good lord, worth remembering that only ever been one lord of London since its refoundation by Alfred the Great, the king. Fitzstevens said, it's a good city if the king is good. Ouch. This city wins honour by its men and glory of its arms and has a multitude of inhabitants so that at the time of the calamitous wars of King Stephen's reign the men going forth from it to be mustered were reckoned to be 20,000 armed horsemen and 60,000 foot soldiers. The citizens of London are everywhere regarded as illustrious and renowned beyond those of all other cities for the elegance of their fine manners, raiment and table. The inhabitants of other towns are called citizens, but those of this are called barons. And with them a solemn oath ends all strife. The matrons of London are very Sabines. So London's reputation as being a tough place we know had been around for centuries. Its defeat of every Viking army sent against it, its resistance towards William I, the fact that it had never been taken by siege and that the Normans and the Danish invaders had to garrison it especially. In Fitzstephen's time, however, it had been famed during the anarchy and while the size of its armed forces is by all accounts a huge exaggeration. This had been the city who had defied the king's mother Matilda and driven her from its suburbs. And oh look, it mentions women and calls them Sabines. That's it, by the way, that's all women of London get. They are Sabines. And it is now that Fitzstevens begins to focus on what he, if he was raised there, or Beckett certainly, had known of London. 
life as a student. And here is where the document really becomes important because it introduces us to the vibrant student life of the city. Then, as now, young school kids of London tended to exist in their own separate world. But his description is utterly exceptional. Have a listen. In London, the three principal churches to it, the Episcopal See of the Church of St. Paul, the Church of the Holy Trinity, and the Church of St. Martin, have famous schools by privilege and in virtue of their ancient dignity. But though the personal favour of some one or more of these learned men who are known and eminent in the study of philosophy, there are other schools licensed by special grace and permission. On holy days, the masters of the schools assemble their scholars at the churches whose feast day it is. The scholars dispute in some demonstrative rhetoric, others in dialectic, some hurtle ethymemes, others with great skill employ perfect syllogisms. Some are exercised in the disputation for the purpose of display, which is but a wrestling bout of wit, but others that may have established the truth for the sake of perfection. So, so, so what we have here is what sounds like intellectual battles between the students of the differing schools. Not for them conflict based on location, although you could say that the West End boys of St. Paul's School maybe had a rivalry with the East End All Saint boys and both personally disliked the centrally located St. Martin students, but that there were regular verbal debates between these students. And, and when you listen carefully, you can't help but feel that it reminds you of something. Sophists who produce fictitious arguments are accounted happy in the profusion and deluge of their words. Others seek to trip their opponents by the use of fallacies. Some orators from time to time in rhetorical harangues seek to carry persuasion, taking pains to observe the precepts of their art and to omit naught that appertains thereto. Boys of different schools strive against one another in verse and contend concerning the principles of the art of grammar or the rules governing the use of past and future. There are others who employ the old wit of the crossroads in epigrams, rhymes and meter, the fashion license. They lacerate their comrades outspokenly. Though mentioning no names, they hurl abuse and jibes. They touch the foibles of their comrades, perchance even of their elders with Socratic wit, not to say bite more keenly than Ian Theon's tooth in their bold dithyrims. Their hearers, ready to laugh their fill, with wrinkling nose, repeat the loud guffaw. Is it me? Crowds of young men throwing verse at one another, insulting their peers, making others laugh. Doesn't that sound a bit like... Oh! He literally robbed your friends of their business, but as soon as he DMs you, you instantly fall to the pressure. He's paying you with the money that he owes to them. Go ah. so out like you didn't know any better. Crazy that you made a paperback when you was the staple that didn't have the spine to hold it together. That short clip of the brilliant Shoppy Horror and Shuffle Tea for me captures the atmosphere of those debates 750 years ago. The humour, the fun, the joy of it, at least in how Fitzstevens describes it. 
Fritz Stevens, however, moves on from student life, at least for now, to talk about the rest of the city. Those that ply their several trades, the vendors of each several thing, the hirers of their several sorts of labours, are found every morning, each in their separate quarters, and engaged upon his own peculiar task. This description of the multitude of trades of London cries out for insights into the daily lives of workers and their professions, but alas, is simply that brief. I remember when I first read that, I was desperate to know more about the jobs and the professions of London, but such things Fitzstevens does not cover, alas. He does, however, go on to describe a fast food district of London, down by the docks near Bishopsgate. Moreover, there is in London, upon the river's bank, amid the wine that is sold from ships and wine cellars, a public cook shop. Daily, according to the season, you may find dishes roast, fried and boiled, fish great and small, a course of flesh for the poor, the more delicate for the rich, such as venison and birds, both big and small. If friends, weary with travel, should of a sudden come upon any of the citizens, and it is not their pleasure to wait fasting until fresh food is bought and cooked. Let servants bring water for hands and bread, meanwhile they hasten to the river, and there all things that they desire are ready to the hand. However great the infinite of knights and foreigners that enter the city, or about to leave it, or at whatever hour of day or night, that the former may not fast too long, nor the latter depart without their dinner. They turn aside thither, if so pleases them, and refresh themselves, each after his own manner. Those who desire to fare delicately need not search to find sturgeon or guinea fowl, since all dainties that are found there are set forth before their eyes. Now this is a public cookshop appropriate to the city and pertaining to the art of civic life. Hence that saying when we read in the Gregorius of Plato to wit that the art of cookery is a counterfeit of medicine and a flattery of the fourth part of the art of civic life. <laughs> While Fitzstevens does describe what appears to be a single cookshop, the range of things available does suggest an open all-hours region serving food to all, an amazing and probably vibrant part of the city whose existence we only know about due to Fitzstevens. He then moves on to describe life in the new suburbs of the city outside its wall, Smithfield, also known as Smoothfield, as we will see, and describes not the ecstatic church set up by Rahiri, St. Bart's, but rather what it was better known before that church and that hospital were built. In the suburb immediately outside one of the gates, there is a smooth field, both in fact and in name. On every sixth day of the week, unless it be a major feast day on which solemn rites are prescribed, there is a much-frequented show of fine horses for sale. Thither come all the earls, barons, and knights who are in the city, and with them many of the citizens, whether to look or buy. It is a joy to see the ambling palfreys, their skin full of juice, their coats a-glisten as they pace softly, in alternation, rising and putting down of the feet on one side and together, Next you see the horses that best befit the squires, moving more roughly, yet nimbly, as they rise and set down the opposite feet, fore and hind, first on one side, then the other, and then the younger colts, of high breeding, unbroken, and high-stepping with elastic tread, and after them the costly districters of graceful form, 
ungodly stature, with quivering ears, high necks and plump buttocks. As these show their paces, the buyers watch first their gentler gait, then that swift emotion wherein the forefeet are thrown back and out together, and the hind feet also, as it were, counterwise. When a race between such trampling steeds is about to begin, or perchance between others, which are likewise after their kind, strong to carry, swift to run, a shout is raised, and horses of the baser sort are bidden to turn aside. Three boys riding these fleet-foot steeds, or at times two, may be agreed, prepare themselves for a contest. Skilled to command their horses, they curve their untamed mouths with jagged bits, and their chief anxiety is that their rivals shall not gain the lead. The horses, likewise, after their fashions, lift up their spirits for the race. Their limbs tremble, impatient of delay. They cannot stand still. When the signal is given, they stretch forth their limbs. They gallop away. They rush on with obstinate speed. Their riders, passionate for renown, hoping for victory, vie with one another in spurring their swift horses and lashing them forward with their switches, no less than they excite them by their cries. You would believe that all things are in motion, as Helicantius maintained, and the belief of Zeno was wholly false when he claimed that motion was impossible and that no man could ever reach the finish of a race. The horse market of Smithfield sounds like one of North London's most well-established and vibrant markets indeed, with horses of all breeds and ages for sale to keen eyes and ready purses. And the vibrancy and atmosphere of such an event is clearly described. Here is an amazing description of London's love of horse racing. This is no organised meet. Impromptu races on the spur of a moment. Young riders and small bouts with men calling for others to be moved out of the way to allow some short track be created. No doubt wages being placed and cheers for the winners being decided. But the horse market is not the only country market available outside of London. In another place apart stand the wares of the country folk, instruments of agriculture, long-flanked swine, cows with swollen udders and woolly flocks and bodies huge of kind. Mares stand there, meat for the ploughs, sledges and two-horse carts. The bellies of some are big with young, round others move their offspring, newborn sprightly fowls and separable followers. At this point, Fitzstevens then carries on with his description of trade and markets by returning us briefly to the docks. To this city, from every nation that is under heaven, merchants rejoice to bring their trade in ships, gold from Arabia and Sabi spice, and incense from the Scythians' arms of steel, well-tempered, oil from the rich groves of palm that spring on the fat lands of Babylon, fine gems from the Niles, from China crimson silks, French wines and sable, ver and miniver, and from lands far where Rus and Norsemen dwell. Now, we have to give some liberty to Fitzstevens here. That last bit was him quoting some unknown poetry, and while honestly, we have no evidence of goods from China turning up. There are plenty of things in there which could describe the growing strength of the market and the docks. While most traders here were merely Flemish or German, the goods they carried had come from exotic lands in many cases, including from the Rus and the Norse, whose goods we know had been bought by Danish traders. It is an intoxicating insight to the vibrancy of the city's docklands. Fitzstevens then begins to describe the city's history, and here we begin to see how Londoners of the time saw themselves. 
When you listen to this next section, please be aware that he didn't have the advantages of modern scholarship to aid him. But it is fascinating to think that this is perhaps our first insight into London's self-identity. How did Londoners see themselves? London, as the chronicles have shown, is far older than Rome. For owing its birth to the same Trojan ancestors, it was founded by Brutus before Rome was founded by Romulus and Remus. Wherefore, they both still use the ancient laws and like institutions. London, like Rome, is divided into wards. In place of consuls, it has sheriffs every year. Its senatorial order and lesser magistrates, sewers and conduits in its streets, and for the pleading of diverse causes, demonstrative, deliberate and judicial, it has its proper places, its separate courts. It also has its assemblies on appointed days. And again, we see the clash between self-identity and reality right here. We know that the developments of posts such as Shire Reeves or Sheriffs, or before that the Port Reeves and Aldermen and Stallers, were all originating in the mad mixture of Anglo-Saxon, Danish and Norman control of the city. But to the people at the time, or at least to the self-absorbed clerics of the period, such a system was merely a reflection of the city's ancient Trojan origin, matching any, anything to be found in most ancient Rome. <laughs> Still, there were things about London that really did stand out, and one of the most important was the long-held passion of their Christian faith, a hallmark of the city which impacted every aspect of their lives. I do not think that there is any city deserving greater approval for its customs in respect to church-going, to the ordinance of God, keeping of feast days, giving of alms, entertainment of strangers, rectifying of betrothals, contracts of marriage, celebrations of nuptials, furnishing of banquets, cheering of guests, and likewise for their care in regard to the rites of funeral and the burial of the dead. The only plagues of London are the immoderate drinking of fools and the frequency of fires. I love that last line. Here we are, 750 years later, and how much has changed? The city is no longer plagued by frequent fires which destroy large swathes of it. And how much hasn't changed? You know, the immoderate drinking of fools? Let's move on, shall we? To that which I have said, this also must be added, that almost all bishops, abbots and magnates of England are, as it were, citizens and freemen of the city of London, having lordly habitations there, whether they repair or wherein they make lavish outlay, when summoned to the city by our lord, the king, or by his metropolitan to councils and great assemblies, and are drawn hither by their own affairs. And... This really is Fitzstevens describing one of the things that was to make London so important in its future. The need for rich and powerful people from around the country to have their own properties and dwellings in London. How it mattered not where you lived in the country, eventually you had to come to London. But now Fitzstevens comes to his final section. And it is here he begins to go into a lot more detail about one fascinating and again previously unexplored aspect of the social life of London. Or, as we say, in the 21st century. And now, sports. 
Furthermore, let us consider also the sports of the city. Since it is not meet that a city should only be useful and sober, unless it also be pleasant and merry, London, in place of shows in the theatre and stage plays, has holier days, wherein are shown forth the miracles wrought by holy confessors, or the suffering which glorified the constancy of martyrs. And in saying London didn't watch stage plays, Fitzstephen clearly shows that London, even now 750 years ago, centuries before the arrival of the King's Men and William Shakespeare, that they did watch plays of a sort, mystery plays based on biblical stories or reenactments of the martyrdom of saints, although heaven only knows if they had enough people to replicate the 11,000 young virgins who were supposedly killed alongside St. Ursula if they ever decide to repeat her story. But for Stevens now comes on to the pastimes of young men in the city, and I believe these are the memories of Beckett recalling the Hassian days of his youth. Moreover, each year upon the day called Carnival, to begin with the sport of boys, for we were all boys once, boys from the schools bring fighting cocks to their master, and the whole forenoon is given up to boyish sport, for they have a holiday in the schools, that they may watch their cocks do battle. Well, aside from cockfighting being seen as a socially acceptable blood sport for children to partake in, and also allowing me a moment to overcome the fact I just read aloud a sentence that said in the 1170s young men would watch their cocks do battle, what Fitzstevens then describes sounds like the first written account of this city's love of what would become football, a relationship that has remained consistent and constant over the last seven centuries. And indeed, the passions we see today in the Emirates Stadium or Stamford Bridge, Craven Cottage, every Saturday afternoon does not seem out of place in this following description of London. After dinner, all the youth of the city goes out into the fields to a much-frequented game of ball. The scholars of each school have their own ball, and almost all the workers of each trade have their own also in their hands. Elder men and fathers and rich citizens come on horseback to watch the contents of their juniors, and after their fashion are young again with the young. It seems that the motion of their natural heat is kindled by the contemplation of such violent motion, and by their partaking in the joys of untrammeled youth. Fitzstevens then goes on about other pastimes the young partake in. Every Sunday in Lent after dinner, a fresh swarm of young gentles goes forth on war horses, steeds skilled in the contest of which each is apt and schooled to wield in circles round. From the gates burst forth in throngs the lay sons of the citizens, armed with lance and shield, the younger with shafts forked at the end, with a steel point removed. They wake war's semblance, and in mimic context exercises their skill at arms. Many courtiers come too, when the king is in residence, and from the households of earls and barons come young men not yet invested with the belt of knighthood, that they may there contend together. Each one of them is on fire with the hope of victory. 
The fierce horses neigh, their limbs tremble, they champ at the bit, impatient of delay, they cannot stand still. When at length the hoof of trampling steeds careers along, the useful riders divide their hosts. Some pursue those that fly before and cannot be overtake them, others unhorse their comrades and speed by. At the Feast of Easter they make sport with naval tawnies, as it were, for a shield being strongly bound to a stout pole in midstream, a small vessel, driven by many men on oar and by the river's flow, carries a youth standing at the prow who is to strike a shield with his lance. If he break the lance by striking the shield and keep his feet unshaken, he has achieved his purpose and fulfilled his desire. If, however, he strike it strongly without splintering his lance, he is thrown into the rushing water and the boat of its own speed passes him by. But there on each side of the shield two vessels moored, and in the many use to snatch up the striker, who has been sucked down by the stream. As soon as he emerges into sight, or once more bubbles on the topmost wave. On the bridge and galleries above the river are spectators of the sport, ready to laugh their fill. To be honest, this sounds like a madder version of the boat race, but again, I can't help but feel that... It's like occasions we see today. You know the ones where Red Bull sponsors people trying to fly across some water and failing to laughing crowds. And the idea of hijinks on the Thames like this, well, at least it's not as bad as having the mayor stuck on a zip wire, I suppose. On feast days throughout the summer, the youths exercise themselves in leaping, archery and wrestling, putting the stone or throwing the thronged javelin beyond a mark and fighting with sword and buckler. Sarithia leads the dance of maidens, and the earth is smitten with free foot at moonrise. You know, we rejoice in the athletics witnessed back in the Olympics in 2012, and take on board that was London hosting its third Olympics ever. And here we see similar events, much less organised properly, but we see them taking place upon London fields, along with hunting with dogs. It's not just the Summer Olympic events that London seven centuries ago seemed to partake in. In winter, at almost every feast day before dinner, either foaming boars and hogs, armed with tusks lightning swift, themselves soon to be bacon, fight for their lives. Or fat bulls with butting horns, or huge bears do combat to death, against the hounds let loose upon them. When the great marsh that washes the north walls of the city is frozen, dense throngs of youth go first to disport themselves upon the ice. Some gathering speed by a run glide along with feet set apart over a vast space of ice. Others make themselves seats of ice-like millstones and are dragged along by a number who run before them holding hands. Sometimes they slip owing to the greatness of their speed and fall, every one of them upon their faces. Others there are, more skilled to sport upon the ice, who fit to their feet the shin bones of beasts, lashing them beneath their ankles, and with iron-shod poles in their hands, they strike ever and anon at the ice, and are borne along swift as the flight or a boat shot from a mangonel. But sometimes, two by agreement, run against one another from great distance, and raising their poles, strike one another. One or both fall, not without bodily harm, since on falling, they are borne a long way in the opposite direction, by the force of their motion. And wherever the ice touches their head, it scrapes and skins it entirely. 
Often that he that falls breaks arm or shin if he falls upon it. But youth is an age greedy of renown, yearning for victory, and exercises itself in mimic battles that it may bear itself more boldly in true combat. So I'm wondering if we Londoners should revive the sport of ice jousting, as it seems to be truly event we specialised in. Many of the citizens delight in taking their sport with birds of the air, merlins and falcons and the like, and with dogs that wage warfare in the woods. The citizens have the special privilege of hunting in Middlesex, Hertfordshire and Old Chilton, and in Kent as far as the River Cray. So the arts of falconry and hunting are mentioned the second time for hunting, and it is clear that London had long rights to hunt over wide ranging areas. When we mentioned the Hounds of London a few chapters back, it's clear that hunting dogs were probably a common sight upon the streets of London if Fitzstevens is to be believed. The city of London has brought forth not a few men who subdued many nations. And in Christian times, she brought forth the great Emperor Constantine, who gave the city of Rome and all the insignia of empire to God, and the blessed Peter and Sylvester, the Roman Pope, to whom he rendered the office of a groom and rejoiced no longer to be called emperor, but rather defender of the Holy Roman Church. And in modern times, she has also produced monarchs renowned and magnificent, the Empress Matilda, King Henry III, the Blessed Thomas, the Archbishop and Christ's glorious martyr, Again, false memories of self-identity. Constantine never subjugated himself to the Roman Church, and even then he only accepted the heretical Arian version of Christianity. But of note here is the mention of London producing two names that stand out, Empress Matilda and Henry III. Understand, we know London defied Matilda and drove her from the city, but hey, her son with King, and you praised her in this era, so Fitzstevens did. And who was Henry III? The eldest-born son of Henry II, Prince Henry, who had already been crowned heir and king and elevated to take over. Of course, he was to die young, and his younger brother Richard was to be the next man to take the throne, but that lay in the future. And so that is it. That is London in 1174. The document of Fitzstevens that allows us to catch a glimpse of the city. This document may not give Londoners a voice, but here we see a slice of London's life that was and would be hidden to us if it were not for it. And for this, Fitzstevens, for all his faults, is a figure who all London antiquarians will forever be grateful for. And that's it. Thanks for listening. And coming up, we expand more on the tale of the man whose biography gave us this entire episode in the preface, the story of Thomas of London. Hope you enjoyed it. Bit of a different episode from me. And I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London.